0: Hello everyone and welcome to the May 2nd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd-Skerin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeals cited various privileges that protected Sega and its TPA from a civil lawsuit by a worker's primary treating physician in a defamation action filed against them. In this case, an injured worker filed a claim in April 2015. After the employer's workers' compensation carrier became insolvent, SEGA became responsible for paying the claim, and Sedgwick was the third-party claims administrator for SEGA that handled the workers' claim. When the examiner reviewed the file, it was noted that a chiropractor, Andrew John Miles, was treating the injured worker but a chiropractor may only serve as primary treating physician under limited circumstances. So the claim examiner prepared a computerized diary entry that instructed a claims assistant to send a letter to the worker letting him know that Miles could not be his primary treating physician and suggested that he should select a different provider to fill that role. The diary entry specifically identified Dr. Miles as the subject of the letter. But the examiner also saw that one of the worker's other medical providers, Dr. Rosen, was no longer an approved medical provider for SEGA claims because the DIR had included Rosen on a list of medical providers who had been indicted for fraud or abuse. So the examiner instructed the assistant to send several form letters to the worker, including one notifying the worker of the indictment issue. And another instructing him to select a new provider. The claim assistant received the two diary entries created by the examiner at the same time and assumed both entries related to chiropractor Miles by mistake. So the letters that were sent said Dr. Miles was the person indicted, not Dr. Rosen. Chiropractor Miles received the letter, called the examiner, and pointed out the mistake and the examiner took several actions that very day to correct them. Nonetheless, the chiropractor sued Sega and Sedgwick for defamation, intentional interference with prospective business relations, and negligent interference with prospective business relations. Sega and Sedgwick both moved for summary judgment, which the trial court granted and the Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case of Miles v. Sedgwick. Sega and Sedgwick asserted three affirmative defenses the litigation privilege and the common interest privilege under the California Civil Code, and the limited liability provided to Sega and its agents under the insurance code. But the case was resolved in favor of Sega and Sedgwick on the common interest privilege alone and the others were not discussed in the opinion. Sega and Cedric argued that the communication was privileged because the drafter and recipients of the letter shared a common interest in the worker's claim as required by the Civil Code privilege, and the Court of Appeal agreed. Siga and Cedric were obligated to reimburse the worker for medical treatment covered under the workers' compensation policy at issue. And the purpose of the letters was to ensure that the worker continued to receive care from medical providers approved by SICA. Thus, the Civil Code privilege applied to the communications, and dismissal of the defamation case was appropriate. And in a new panel decision, the WCAB reversed a finding of AOE-COE by the trial judge, based upon the well-settled substantial medical evidence rules. In this case, Salvador Mendoza claimed a specific injury while employed as a stalker by Esparza Enterprises. After a trial in 2007, the work comp judge found injury to the low back, 10% permanent disability, and the need for future medical treatment. Soon afterward, Mendoza filed a petition to reopen this case against Disparza Enterprises, claiming new and further disability. Then in 2011, while the first case was still pending, Mendoza filed an application for continuous trauma to his lumbar spine and psyche while employed as a baker's helper by his subsequent employer, Smith's Bakeries. Smith's Bakeries denied AOE-COE and further asserted the claim was barred by the one-year statute of limitations, and that applicant filed a claim after notice of termination and layoff, which bars his psychiatric injury. Then, applicant settled his first claim against Esparza Enterprises, including the petition to reopen, and the first employer reserved its rights to seek contribution or reimbursement from the second case, Smith's Bakeries. Thus, the Smith's Bakeries case proceeded to trial to resolve lien claims, and the work judge found injury AOE-COE and that none of the affirmative defenses applied. Reconsideration was granted, and the finding of injury AOE-COE was reversed in the panel decision of Mendoza versus Smith's Bakeries. The finding of AOE-COE was based on reporting of AME Dr. Sohn and the reports of QME Dr. Matlube. The WCB concluded that neither of the reports met the substantial medical evidence standards. The WCB panel noted that in order for a report to be substantial medical evidence, the opinion must be framed in terms of reasonable medical probability and it must not be speculative. It must be based on pertinent facts and on an adequate examination in history, and it must set forth reasoning in support of its conclusions. In this case, Dr. Sohn provided no substantive description of applicants' job duties while working for Smith's bakeries, and no explanation for why those job duties would have resulted in injury. In the absence of a clear understanding of applicants' job duties at Smith's, the conclusion that any new disability could be attributable to his employment at Smith's is not based on an adequate medical history. The reporting of the psychology QME, Dr. Matlube was similarly unsubstantiated. And in another case, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the state prison guard vaccination order. Since the COVID-19 pandemic began, over 50,000 incarcerated prisoners in California state prisons have been infected, and at least 240 of them have died. So a federal judge ordered the state to carry out a court-appointed receiver's recommendation, That all prison staff be vaccinated by January 12, 2022, after finding California's plan for curbing the spread of COVID-19 in state prisons was woefully inadequate, and that its failure to implement a vaccine mandate for staff constitutes deliberate indifference in violation of the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The judge in this case was overseeing overseeing a two-decade-long class action by state prisoners over inadequate medical care and prisoner overcrowding, and issued the vaccination mandate at the request of a federal receiver appointed to manage the prison healthcare system. In the process, the politically powerful prison guards union and Governor Gavin Newsom have resisted a COVID vaccine mandate despite growing outbreaks. So the state of California appealed the order to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Ninth Circuit has now reversed the trial judge in the unpublished case of Plata versus California Correctional Peace Officers Association. The state argued on appeal that the district trial court erred by ruling that the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation Acted with deliberate indifference by requiring only workers in healthcare settings and not all prison workers to be vaccinated statewide. And that the district court failed to narrowly tailor its remedy pursuant, pursuant to the Prison Litigation Reform Act. In reversing the order, the Court of Appeals reviewed case law that established that deliberate indifference has a high legal standard For a successful showing of deliberate indifference, the defendant must provide medically unacceptable care in conscious disregard of an excessive risk to the plaintiff's health. But disagreements about the best medical course of action do not meet the deliberate indifference standard, nor does negligence or malpractice. Thus, the panel concluded that the CCCR's COVID-19 vaccination policy was not deliberately indifferent because the agency took significant action to address the health risks posed by COVID-19, including making vaccines and booster doses available to prisoners and correctional staff, enacting policies to encourage and facilitate staff and prisoner vaccination, requiring staff to wear personal protective equipment, and ensuring unvaccinated staff members are regularly tested for COVID. In light of these uncontested facts, defendants did not ignore or fail to respond to the risk of COVID-19 generally, nor did they disregard the importance of vaccination as key mitigation measures specifically were adopted. And now our crime report. The Department of Justice announced criminal charges against 21 defendants in nine federal districts across the United States, including several who were in California, for their alleged participation in various healthcare care-related fraud schemes that exploited the COVID-19 pandemic. These cases allegedly resulted in over $149 million in COVID-19-related false billings and theft from federally funded pandemic assistance programs. The department seized over $8 million in cash and other fraud proceeds in connection with the Enforcement Action. The names of those involved and summaries of each case in the Enforcement Action are available on the department's website. In one scheme, in the Central District of California, two owners of a clinical laboratory were charged with a healthcare fraud, kickback, and money laundering scheme, that involved the fraudulent billing of over $214 million for laboratory tests. Charges were also filed against manufacturers and distributors of fake COVID-19 vaccination record cards in the Northern District of California, where three additional defendants were charged. And one of the defendants allegedly misused her position as a director of pharmacy at a Northern California hospital to obtain real lot numbers for the Moderna vaccine that were then used to falsify COVID-19 vaccination record cards. Another defendant in the Northern District of California pled guilty to the same scheme in April 2022. And now our regulatory news. The Labor Commissioner's Office has cited three temporary staffing agencies, Viking Staffing, Human Bees Incorporated, and Marcos Retaria AG Services Incorporated, as well as the Joint Employers Foster Farms Entities for nearly $3.8 million for their failure to inform 3,476 temporary workers of their available COVID-19 supplemental paid sick leave rights. The Labor Commissioner's Office opened the investigation into foster Poultry Farms, a processing plant in Livingston, California, after COVID outbreaks were reported at the worksite. The investigation included an audit of payroll records, which determined and showed that the temporary staffing agencies hired staff to fill in for permanent workers affected by COVID-19 outbreaks at the processing plant, but then failed to inform the temporary staff of their rights to supplemental paid sick leave. Foster Farms was also cited because employers who contract with staffing agencies are still obligated to ensure that employees are made aware of sick leave benefits intended to protect workers, their families, and the public from the spread of COVID. The 2022 Supplemental Paid Sick Leave Law went into effect on February 19, 2022, and was retroactive to January 1. It provides covered employees up to 80 hours of COVID-19-related paid leave. And the Labor Commissioner's Office has cited Torrance Car Wash over $800,000 for wage theft violations affecting 35 workers. Their investigation found that some workers worked beyond 80 hours per pay period, but only received pay for about 80 hours no matter how many hours they worked. Others who reported to work on time were made to wait before punching in and not paid for that time. A referral from the Clean Car Wash campaign prompted the investigation. The audit of payroll records confirmed that employer the employer failed to pay workers for all of the hours worked, did not pay workers for waiting times, and did not provide workers with required meal and rest breaks. The citations issued to the car wash manager, Jesus Hernandez, and owners, Susan Amini, and Riza Albolahar also includes civil penalties of nearly $70,000 for failing to pay minimum wages, overtime, meal and rest premiums, and failure to issue proper itemized wage statements. Congress and multiple administrations have taken actions since 2007 to help ensure that federal science agencies have scientific integrity policies and procedures in place that protect against the suppression of or alteration of scientific findings for political purposes. Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been various allegations of political interference affecting scientific decisions at several HHS offices and agencies. For example, in July 2021, several members of Congress criticized the CDC for allegedly revising its face mask guidance for a political purpose. Thus, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, or GAO, was asked to review scientific integrity policies and procedures and how allegations of political interference in scientific decision-making are addressed at the Department of Health and Human Services, and its agencies, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Food and Drug Administration, the National Institutes of Health, and the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, known as ASPR. So it concluded a performance audit in accordance with generally acceptable government auditing standards. According to the audit, and April 2022 GAO report to Congress The four agencies it reviewed do not have procedures that define political interference in scientific decision-making or describe how it should be reported and addressed. And it said that the absence of specific procedures may explain why the four selected agencies did not identify any formally reported internal allegations of potential political interference in scientific decision-making employees at the cdc and fda and nih told the gao they observed incidents that they perceived to be political interference but did not report them for various reasons, which included fearing retaliation being unsure how to report issues and believing agency leaders were already aware of the incidents and more alarmingly the report says A few respondents from the CDC and FDA stated they felt that the potential political interference they observed resulted in the alteration or suppression of scientific findings. Some of these respondents believe that this potential political interference may have resulted in the politically motivated alteration of public health guidance or delayed publication of COVID-19-related scientific findings. Lawmakers, lawyers, and patient advocates agreed last week on proposed legislation that would increase California's medical malpractice pain and suffering limit in civil actions from the current maximum of $250,000, which was established by law back in 1975. The overall haul to the long-standing Medical Injury Compensation Reform Act of 1975, also known as MICRA, is attached to a provision requiring that it be signed into law by Governor Newsom before June 28, which is the deadline for removing a related measure from the November 8 statewide initiative ballot. This year's ballot measure, if it were approved by voters, would have eliminated micro-protections by creating a broad new category of lawsuits under which no cap on non-economic damages or attorney fees would apply. California's existing medical malpractice cap imposes a $250,000 limit on how much patients can be awarded for damages that are not directly related to medical bills and economic losses, such as earnings but critics have argued that a cap on awards for pain and suffering severely limits how much injured children, retirees, and stay-at-home parents can receive while also deterring deterring attorneys from taking on the complex cases. The revised framework under the negotiated agreement was reached after several weeks of intense negotiations between attorneys and doctors groups, and the recovery limits have been increased from one quarter million to as much as one million dollars. This agreement signals the end to one of the most long standing battles in California politics. The agreement will be contained in amendments to Assembly Bill thirty five, which sidesteps what would have otherwise been a bruising and expensive political fight. Efforts to increase the malpractice cap in twenty fourteen that was Proposition 46, was overwhelmingly rejected by voters. But a Los Angeles Times investigation found that since 2013, the Medical Board of California has reinstated 10 physicians who had lost their licenses for sexual misconduct, including two doctors who abused teenage girls and one who beat two female patients while they reported him for sexually exploiting them. In addition, the Times found that the board had consistently allowed doctors accused of negligence to keep practicing and harming patients, and at times leaving them dead, paralyzed, brain damaged, or missing limbs. So lawmakers are currently weighing several legislative proposals to overhaul the state medical board, including a bill to permanently ban doctors convicted of sexually abusing patients and another that would change the makeup of the Medical Board to a public member majority. California's Division of Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board met this month and formally adopted the third readoption of its COVID-19 Emergency Temporary Standard, or ETS as it's called. The new rules will become effective when the Office of Administrative Law completes its review and files it with the Secretary of State. And this is anticipated to be before the end of the first week of May, 2022. And the new standards will remain in effect through December 31, 2022. In a stunning reversal, employee vaccination status is no longer a functional part of the proposed ETS. And the definition of fully vaccinated has been removed as the new ETS applies to employees without regard to vaccination status. Any employee is now entitled to request a respirator for voluntary use, and an employer must offer COVID-19 testing to any employee exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19. At the same time, close contact provisions no longer depend on vaccination status under the new draft ETS text. And what is sure to be a controversial move, their proposed ETS has no set rules for close contact exclusion from the workplace. Instead, the proposed ETS now requires that employers review current California Department of Public Health guidance regarding quarantine or other measures to reduce transmission and to develop, implement, and maintain effective policies to prevent COVID-19 transmission, From close contacts. In contrast to the lack of specific close contact rules, the new rules with respect to COVID 19 case exclusion and return to work are not left to conjecture. The proposed ETS no longer restricts the type of COVID 19 tests that can be used to identify COVID 19 cases or otherwise be made available to employees when required and clearing during outbreaks. The old restriction prohibiting use of self-administered and self-read tests applies only to -to return-to-work criteria unless another means of independent verification can be provided, such as a time-stepped photograph of the test results presumably taken by the employee. And surfaces and objects potentially contaminated are no longer included within the definition of a COVID-19 hazard and the proposed ETS removes all cleaning and disinfection requirements, including the requirement to clean an area used by a COVID-19 case. The minor and major outbreak provisions of the proposed ETS no longer require consideration or use of cleanable solid partitions whenever social distancing cannot be maintained. Employers should obtain a copy Of the ETS before it becomes effective in order to be compliant with the new standard. And in other industry news, a new report from the Workers' Compensation Research Institute and the International Association of Accident Boards and Commissions has been published to help identify the similarities and distinctions between workers' compensation regulations and benefit levels in the united states and canadian provinces and it now includes information related to the pandemic new in this edition is information about regulations addressing presumption of causation availability of hearings and legal proceedings virtually and a retrospective review of the maximum weekly benefit amount for temporary total disability both in canada and the united states Workers' compensation is entirely under the control of sub-national legislative bodies and administrative agencies, and the differences can be subtle. So this study helps readers understand the macro-level differences and general tendencies across jurisdictions, such as which states and provinces allow individual or group self-insurance, which states cover medical stress claims, hearing loss, And cumulative trauma? How many jurisdictions allow the worker to receive temporary total disability and permanent partial disability benefits at the same time? And how do the maximum and minimum payments for temporary and permanent total disability benefits vary and how they change over time? The new study builds on many years of valuable work by the U.S. Department of Labor that pioneered the use of a standard set of tables to promote uniformity in responses across states and consistency in reports from year to year. Although the U.S. Department of Labor suspended its production of these tables for budgetary reasons, the WCIRI and the other agency agreed to work together to continue publishing this important resource. For more information about this study, please visit the WCRI's website. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WarComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scaron, Manuki, and Langeman. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.